0: And they had like one goal, one extremely articulated and very passionately held goal, which was to not assimilate in America. They had a very strong feeling that the West sucked up your culture and you got, you lost your most important values, your faith, your observance.
1: Have you ever considered what it's like to learn an entirely new culture, a way of life so different from yours, with its own customs, traditions, newspapers, cell phones, food, currency? And that way of life is even closer than you think. Frida Weisel is a walking tour guide and passionate educator of the Hasidic Jewish community of Brooklyn. She's a YouTuber, a blogger featured in the New York Times, Time Out New York, Love Awards, and National Geographic Traveler. But what's even more fascinating is why Frida, who grew up in the Satmar Hasidic culture, divorced her husband, took her child, and left the faith and the insular community in pursuit of a bigger life. She talks about it all with us today. This was probably one of my favorite conversations as I was beyond fascinated by the culture, the differences, and couldn't help but form my own opinions about it and love not only Frida's bravery, but also her reverence and advocacy for educating about it, despite her leaving. I promise you, you're gonna message me about this one. I hope you will. And if you have friends who might be interested in learning more about the Hasidic Jewish lifestyle, please text them this episode right now. Let's get to my chat with Frida Weisel. If you'd like to listen to these episodes ad-free and early and support an independent podcaster that's me. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash culture changers or go to allisonhair.com for the direct link. I'd love for you to welcome Frida Beisel to the Culture Changers podcast. Welcome, Frida.
0: Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you.
1: You are a tour guide for Brooklyn, but specifically on the Hasidic Jewish part of it. There are two parts, right? There's the hipster part and the Hasidic part. Is that right?
0: That is the story of Williamsburg, which is within Brooklyn. Uh, Williamsburg is one of the trendiest parts of New York City. And it is like on the northern tip of Brooklyn, very, very close to Manhattan, like with beautiful views of Manhattan. So Williamsburg has two sides. One is overpriced, gentrified, we call it hipster side, and the south side. Overpriced, yeah, gentrified, right. <laughs> I could never afford to live there. That's of Williamsburg's north side and the south side. I don't live in either. It's where the Hasidic Jews are. Although I have many family members who live there because my my family is Hasidic.
1: When we connected, I understand that you are looking to de-exoticize Hasidic Jews and the lifestyle, the culture of the Hasidic Jews. This is something I don't know a ton about. And I'm really interested to understand, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background?
0: Sure. So I grew up in the Satmar Hasidic community in the village of Curious Joel, which is about, I think, 60 miles north of the city. But anyway, I grew up in a very insular community. It was like a shtetl, uh isolated town of Hasidic Jews. Our grandparents were Holocaust survivors who came here after the war and really didn't want to assimilate. They were very cognizant of how... Powerful American culture is and they didn't want to become part of it. Uh, They wanted to hold on to their own way of life. So they created this insular community first in Williamsburg and then in Kira's Joel, which is where I was raised. I am the fifth child of 15 children and I grew up in a very, very different... Wait, wait,
1: wait, wait. 15 children? Yeah, 15 children. Oh my God.
0: Yeah, and Uh, none of uh, us are uh, twins.
1: Did anybody notice you? (laughs) Did they forget you were there?
0: (laughs) You know, the grandparents... When you're one of fifteen, the grandparents don't really know who you are. They they just go by your parents' <laughs> name. They're like, "Oh, this is this is Malka's," you know. You know, you you, oh, you end goodness. up being, "Who's this?" Oh, this is this is Lias. You know, it's it's funny. Your moment of shining, when you get all the undivided attention in the world, is when you get married at eighteen. That's that's your moment. It goes by order of age, and that's what happened for me at eighteen. I was. Married off in an arranged marriage and we had a child and then I got divorced and left with my son. So I am not Hasidic anymore, even though the first 25 years of my life, I was Hasidic. So it really made a very strong impression on me. I always would say I felt like I am an observer to a unique way of living. Um, I remember the day I got engaged. I wrote in my journal that, like, I wrote, what is this? I'm engaged to a boy I don't even know. Like, I, I had a strong feeling that things were not, were, were orchestrated in a way that felt fascinating to me. Yet I was, it was my life itself. And as I got more mature, I started to have issues with Certain restrictive roles for men and women, um, with a certain, you have to sort of play with the system in order to survive in the system. I, I think that's true in all cultures, but in the Hasidic community, it's true to an enormous degree. And I think I, I'm very strong headed and I, I have to do things my way and I'll pay a huge price. It's always been in my nature. And, um, as I got older, I just, I just could not live in that world. I could not do the pragmatic thing for my self-preservation. So that's why I left. But I, I have a very mixed bag of feelings towards that world. I feel grateful that I got to make myself a different life. Yet at the same time, I also think that for a lot of people, it provides a lot of meaning and beauty. And I think all societies are flawed. So the flaws in that community are not particularly to me outrageous in comparison. to you know, there, there's a give and take everywhere, but also I would say, you know, sometimes I, I feel for some people, I feel really, um, they don't fit in there and I feel sad. And other people I think are lucky to be part of a very rich culture in New York city in the 21st century. So that's what I try to explore and share through my work.
1: I have so much to unpack here. So you have left and essentially defected this community, but you have such a reverence for it that you have made it your mission to educate on what it means and honor it. And it, it seems like we talk a lot on this podcast about the concept of belonging and how much of a desperate need it is for people to belong to a social identity, to a group, to a community, whatever that means. Maybe it's a, an ideological or political affiliation, but there is such a strong sense of belonging. Where do you think you belong now? Where What feels like home to you?
0: Brooklyn feels like home to me. Is that where you live? That's where I live. Yeah. Okay. And I feel like I feel like I belong. It took me a little bit of time when I left I first lived in the suburbs. And I thought, you know, I had this dream of, of having a manicured lawn and lovely flowers, which I had a, a beautiful old home I lived in, and I thought, "Oh, this is the life. This is what I want." I I felt like this this idyllic Suburban world. I was driving a car. Hasidic women are not allowed to drive a car. So being able to, or Hasidic women from the, 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 who come from the community I come from, I don't want to talk too broadly because there are various Hasidic groups but the world I come from, w- women weren't allowed to drive. So living in the suburbs and the car culture and the lovely little house and the garden and the sweet children and all of that was the dream. And you know what? I didn't feel like I belonged at all. I mm.
1: had a really- did you feel like you were betraying? Like when you went through that, did you feel like you were betraying your community, your upbringing when you started to kind of live a life that was different from what is prescribed?
0: Yeah, I felt like I was hurting my family a lot. I felt like I was doing something for me and my child at the cost of people who are also dear to me, but who, for instance, my parents, my siblings, very much so. But the community writ large, I don't think, I didn't feel like I was hurting them. I felt like they were, you know, small towns, cultures are very gossipy worlds that enjoy the schadenfreude of anyone who has a story about them, some kind of scandal around them. So Mm. that's that was my experience about the community writ large, that people were uh, enjoying the spectacle of someone going off the rails, so to speak. So I didn't feel like I was betraying them, but I felt terrible about my family.
1: Is that something that they have come to terms with and you have come to terms with?
0: I am sure they will tell you they have not come to terms with it. <laughs> Every so often someone in, in Williamsburg, where I give tours, right, will tell me, Oh, I saw your father in the synagogue and I told him you'll still come back someday or something like that, you know. Uh, there will always be these little interactions where someone will say, He's still hoping your father or your you know, your family's still hoping you'll come back someday, or or when are you coming back?
1: Or, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Or I
0: see I see you ready to come back. You know, there, there's kind of a delegitimizing of my journey. Sometimes a sense of, oh, ah, yeah, yeah, you'll come back yet, yeah, like that, which I all take in good view. You know, people, people just mean well when they say it. it doesn't begin to bother me. I laugh it off. Yeah. But for me, it's, I'm, I'm gone. You know, it's that, that world is not something I can live in.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the culture that segregating men and women in every, every chance, can you tell me about some of the basic principles of the belief system and where it came from? Yeah. Okay. We'll try to do it.
0: I know it's, you know,
1: like, can you talk about uh, hundreds of years, (laughs) thousands of years?
0: Yeah. and And we don't want to get lost in, in the, you know, there's so much to Hasidic Judaism, but the, the. Cliff's notes story is Hasidic Judaism form is a form of Judaism that cropped up in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. And it was very different from Ju- Judaism, Orthodox Judaism at the time, which was very centered on studying the texts. You know, the Jews were the Talmud and spending hours uh, peering over texts engaged in very intellectual style. I mean, this is men intellectual style, um, Study That was the worship of Jews in the Orthodox world in Eastern Europe at the time, where, where Ashkenazi of Orthodox Jew, Judaism was centrally located. And then Hasidic Judaism turned that on its head by, by being more focused on singing and dancing and worship. And most of all, a charismatic figure, a tzaddik, a rabbi. And every rabbi has his own group. We call them a sect. You can call it a dynasty so he would have his own little like club that would be named after a location. So the town of Satumar has become the Satmar sect, which is now one of the largest and most powerful sects in the world. And that's the sect that I come from. So the important part to understand about Hasidic Judaism is that there are these different sects. That are shaped by different places that they emerged in, like a Hungarian sect is extremely shaped by Hungarian history versus a Polish sect or a Russian sect. So a lot of people know about the Chabad Lubavitch sect, which is very different from the Satmar sect because the Chabad Lubavitch sect is evolved in a different place, and they have they focus on outreach to other Jews, so it makes them a, a very different group. So today, what I would say about Hasidic Judaism is that they came. Hasidim were almost entirely wiped out in the war, especially Polish Hasidic groups because Poland was invaded very early in the war. So the Polish Hasidic groups were almost entirely wiped out, but the Hungarian groups were invaded. Hungary was invaded in 1944, so it had a much higher survival rate because it was almost at the end of the war when they started to round up. I mean, almost. It was like a lot of our grandparents were six months in the war, but still that allowed... The, for there to be enough survivors to regroup and come to New York after the war. And they had like one goal, one extremely articulated and very passionately held goal, which was to not assimilate in America. They had a very strong feeling that the West sucked up your culture and you got, you lost your most important values, your faith, your observance. To my grandparents, faith equaled rituals and observance. So if you couldn't, if, if you came to America and you stopped observing the Shabbos, which meant you started to work on Shabbos when you're not allowed to, if you came to America and you...
1: Shabbos is the day of rest. Shabbos is the
0: day of rest. Yeah. Exactly. Or if you came to America and instead of marrying a Jew from your tribe, you married out of the community or you stopped being modest, and you stopped praying and you stopped put, putting on the ritual... The tefillin or any of the other rituals, then that was the ultimate loss of the Jewish people itself. You know, to be Jewish was to hold on to these items of faith. So my grandparents set up these insular communities that are very strongly focused on not allowing secular culture in. So we didn't have TV, we didn't have radio, we didn't have Um, secular music we didn't we weren't allowed to read secular books we spoke yiddish so all these customs are an effort to not allow us to americanize which has actually been very successful because the community is now we're in 2022 and this is a community that settled here in the 1940s 1950s and is still going very strong growing at an enormous rate so
1: wow i saw that there are 130,000 hasidic households throughout the world does that sound right
0: it's very hard to count because how do you know? Uh
1: huh. I don't know. That's what Wikipedia told me. Yeah, but <laughs> Wikipedia
0: takes it from somewhere that uh, who
1: knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah.
0: It's hard to know. I but wonder it's big. that
1: that has to be so difficult when right across there's so much gentrification. You know, so close to it, and there's so I imagine there's so much misunderstanding if it is such an insular community. Is there a desire to share these traditions and these, this importance with more secular community or is it keep out? We're, we're, we're protecting this.
0: Generally the latter. Yeah. Generally. Wow. Yeah. You know, now that I'm doing a YouTube channel, I'm dying to record people uh, on performing rituals. There's sukkah huts, there um, Hanukkah menorah lighting, preparing for Passover, whatever. There are a million things, weddings. I would love to record all of it. You know what? It's almost impossible because people don't want, people aren't interested in sharing because the view is, first of all, you can invite anti-Semitism. That, that's sometimes an anxiety that if you open yourself, if you make yourself too visible to the world, then maybe you'll invite anti-Semitism. But also people feel like they'll be affected by the outside world. And and mm. maybe that is true.
1: Well, it happened to you, you know? Exactly, like- it happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you start to realized there was a world around you that felt like, it. did you did you always feel like this doesn't feel right? Or how did you get out?
0: <laughs> uh, those are, I guess, two questions. I would say, I, know, I didn't think that things weren't right. I did have a tremendous hunger for the forbidden. Sometimes I walk through Williamsburg and I'll see a little kid who when we walk by will cover his eyes, you know, he's trying to be so conservative and so pious that he doesn't look at us. And then other times I'll walk through the neighborhood and there'll be these little kids who will stare with us at us with like open curiosity. And I think you can see from such a young age, the kind of kid who will be content, the kind of kid who will keep seeing only what's within the world and the kid who will just simply not be able to look away from the new, the novel, the forbidden, and that was me. Uh, and There were so many experiences I had as a child where whatever you weren't allowed to have and whatever you weren't allowed to see, I needed to see. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll
0: just give you an example. My father had this ritual. So we were a lot of kids. And when I was a kid, we were very poor. So we didn't get a lot of gifts, but he had this ritual and he went through the mail. He was always very excited about the mail. The mail was a very big deal to him. Um, and he was a big personality, with a huge presence. And he would have one of the children bring the mail to him every day while he ate dinner. And then he would give the pieces of mail that you didn't, that he didn't need to the children who, you know, one of us, as we stood in line and picked them up from him. And we would get like a dental flyer and then you'd cut out the toothbrush and put it in your school notebook as a decoration. So he would then take flyers that were inappropriate and he would tear them up and put them in the trash. You know? Miss shine. thought not nice. And he would put it in the trash. It would be like a swimming pool ad from a company that was making swimming pools that showed a picture of, of a couple in a bathing suit at night at their in-ground wow. pool. And i like yeah. dig it out of the trash and I'd look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it will get that me so excited. Is, this is blowing
1: my mind. Yeah. As you kind of share space in Williamsburg and you share, is there something that feels like joy when you live in that insular community and is, is it joy or is it compliance that equals adhering or being closer to God? Yeah, that
0: is the great question. And I would say probably both. And for some people it might feel like compliance. And for some people it might feel closer to joy. And maybe for some people it might feel like both. For me, it felt like compliance. I also am not naturally a very, um, faith oriented person. Like there were teachers who would say, if you do something like you turn on the light on Shabbos, you're not allowed to turn on the light. If you turn on light on Shabbos, God sees, and then you'll be punished. And there were most of the kids I knew would be very scared by that, but I was, I don't know. It just didn't click for me. It didn't, it didn't impress on me the way it did for other kids. If no one saw them, you use an elbow and you turn on the light because it's dark and you're looking for something to show your friends and nah God won't care. What's the big deal? Like it didn't have this kind of immediacy to me, yeah. which I think when you have that immediate connection to God, when you have that strong feeling about this great spiritual story, then you can feel joy. That's what I'm imagining. You feel a kind of ecstasy around restrictions that I think I didn't feel i felt a more sweet joy at at the night lovely holidays that i liked some of them i didn't <laughs> that kind of joy the of children happy children that's that's joy
1: it seems like the feeling of family and tradition are really honored food especially yeah. um and there's a great video for the listeners on Frida's website that's kind of showing her tour around Brooklyn and uh-huh. so um, around Williamsburg, rather the Hasidic portion of that. And it was so fast. Like I couldn't stop watching. And I, I'm like, Oh, I have to do this interview. I really want more. <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn more about it. I know there are specific newsstands and everything is written in Hebrew. And I wonder if the news is it, what's the word? Is there like ignorance, like an eight. ignorance, yes, like of, of understanding what's going on, how they might be impacted from a culture, whether it's climate change, whether it's things that are going on with the government. I'm wondering, how in the world can you keep the prices of New York more affordable in the acidic community? Like, I'll move to Brooklyn if I can <laughs> live in the acidic community, I'd probably be kicked out. Oh, yeah. But I I wonder, how do you keep it insulated and how insulated is it?
0: yeah ultimately they have their own newspapers i i show that in my video i also did a video where i do an in-depth more in-depth exploration of the yiddish newspapers and i show a little bit how they're censored someone is censoring secular news and putting it out for print so someone is exposed to the world and then just making decisions about what the Hasidic community can see and what they can't. So obviously there is a channel going between the secular world and the Hasidic world. And you see this in so many aspects of life. If you look close enough while you walk through the neighborhood, it's everywhere. Um, So that's, that's something that is a very, very interesting question because it seems that they live in their isolated pods, but actually there's
1: constantly
0: that kind of decision being made. What do we allow and what do we not? Um, a careful measuring. Like one of the things I looked at uh, on my blog that I, I found really interesting was during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. You know what I'm talking about? The Supreme Court. Oh yeah. Okay. I have a lot of- <laughs> Immediately
1: of it- <laughs> twist my stomach. Yes.
0: I have a lot of international visitors, so they they don't know American politics. I, I'm used to asking uh, if they know American personalities are. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to see how the Hasidic media covered it because I knew that this is the kind of politics they would cover but because it had a sex scandal, that can't, couldn't be because you can't, sex is one of the things that has to be censored out, anything related to sex.
1: How does one learn about sex? You know, you're 18, you're married off. Do you just kind of fumble around in the <laughs> no, dark no, no, and no. giggle? <laughs> no, How no. do you learn about sex? <laughs> I
0: don't know that there's a lot of giggling involved. You, you get, <laughs> you get taught right before you're married. You get, you
1: do? Yeah,
0: yeah. Awkward. Who
1: teaches you?
0: There's a, a bride or a groom teacher who walks you through <sighs> the awkward. Yeah. So, so with the Brett Kavanaugh story, what was interesting was they did report that his, his confirmation to the Supreme Court was held up, but they didn't say why because they would never say, mm. Oh, there is a, an allegation of a woman, um, you know, of him of sexual impropriety. There was nothing. They just pretended that there wasn't a need for being a reason. They they were just like the technical aspects of the, of of the stalling. This care this person, Pelosi, saying we should have more and more inquiries. So there, the headline is like Brett Kavanaugh confirmation is held up. Pelosi saying we should wait. Um, Grassley or whoever it is, is saying we should go ahead, and that's it. That's it. There's
1: Nobody asks any more questions, any second or third level questions? (laughs) I don't know.
0: It's a good question.
1: (laughs) I just, you know, I wonder, um, I'm trying to be as, you know, as I'm listening to this, it feels so oppressive. It feels so oppressive to have so much restricted in honoring the community and honoring the traditions of it. I get it. Right. Is there a freedom? Like what does freedom look like in the community? And maybe their definition of freedom is different than mine. And I, I respect and honor that. Yeah. You yeah.
0: Know? I, think, I think freedom is not necessarily considered a valuable commodity. You know, I think, huh. uh, you know, American society maybe sees freedom as a great virtue. We had a negative term. I think it's largely negative for Jews who weren't religious, which was free Jews. Which meant essentially they have thrown off the the yoke of, of the the, the tremendous responsibility of religious life, and they're yeah. now out there having a good time in their jeans or whatever, and, and not carrying on the tradition. So I think it's less freedom and more a sense of of obligation. I, I've given a tour to a military veterans group, and they found a lot of resonance in the community to military life, where you aren't so much free, but regimented and have a strong sense of belonging and where leaving is a, huh. a traumatic, yeah.
1: That's a beautiful way to put it. And I think it's a good reframe too. So you have experience in and you have experience out. And so you, you have a really beautiful way of uh, of having this incredible past life and and viewpoint. What do people get wrong about Hasidic Judaism that is really important for you to help educate?
0: Well, I think a lot of people think that anyone who doesn't live like them is just uh, an oppressed robot without any autonomy and without any interior life. That's my feeling. People see a victim or or a pawn of a of a male rabbi leader, and I think It's important to understand that ultimately we're all objects of our culture. We ultimately want to belong Mm. to the world we're in and we try our best to fit in. And that doesn't necessarily make us mindless automatons or at least not more so in one there's always the human part at odds with our desire to fit in. And if you can see that, then you can start to see that there is a robust life, even in communities that sound so black and white and so homogenous that people are trying to navigate the the hard task of fitting in while also finding their place in the world. And I think that's important. It's important to me. I'll tell you why, because I feel like if we appreciate that struggle, the, the challenge between fitting in and our autonomy, then we can recognize it in ourselves. We can recognize that we're also not a 100% self-made people. We're also often just trying very hard to fit in. And I think being aware of how much we are shaped by our surroundings and how much we're ultimately sacrificing our autonomy for the sake of social acceptance and belonging, I think it makes us more empathetic to ourselves, to others. It makes us more self-aware of ourselves. And that's, that's, I think, valuable.
1: That's really well put. Is there a sense of a connection to humanity from inside the group when it is such an insular community?
0: For the most part, it's very inwardly focused. You know, it's like the outside world doesn't exist. It's just on the periphery. and You don't think much about it. And I would say I did as a kid not appreciate the us versus them in the way that others would. Like my mother would say, don't talk to the cleaning lady. She's not Jew. You know, she's Gentile lady. You don't. I didn't. To me, that distinction doesn't resonate. You know, it was like, so, Mm. so what? She's working so hard cleaning our house. And I think there is was, there was, there was definitely a tribalism, a very strong tribalism that um, runs through worlds like that.
1: I think you're, to your point, we see that tribalism all around us, inside the community, outside the community, whether it's political affiliations, whether it is where you live. I think there's a commonality with that. And I think from from the community from where you came, what do you think we as, as a larger society culturally could learn from the Hasidic Jewish people that would make us better?
0: Uh, I think some of the things that I personally take away are careful um, selectiveness about what in our changing world you accept. I think we have a, a general in the West, there's a general sense of the inevitability of technological progress that your iPhone will be upgraded and you'll have to upgrade it and you'll have to live with a with smartwatch. Now, everyone will do it. If you won't do it, then um, you'll be left in the dust and you just have to get with the times and stop being strong headed. And in some ways, it's true. If you, if you refuse to get with the times in, in a society where everyone is connected, like if I wouldn't want to do things on Zoom, which I'm very reluctant to do for tours, then you're left without work, especially, you know, a lot, you're left without a lot of opportunities. But if an entire society says collectively, we want to make decisions about how much technology we allow in, then you end up having a, a, a social contract that allows people to have the liberty to say, of saying, I don't want so much technology. So you see children in the ascetic community being raised without any gadgets, and I think that's extremely healthy. They have almost no no gadgets.
1: I wonder from a mental health perspective, because I, w- I watched that in your video, and I wondered if the kids are being raised with a much healthier emotional state not being infiltrated with awful images i wonder if there's any data on the mental health that proves that technology versus no technology yeah. is really serving the community well of having a healthy whole person
0: exactly that's see first of all i will say there there are other aspects of Hasidic childhood that i think could be not necessarily conducive to growing up it could be a difficult time in school you know it's not a utopia there by any stretch So I would say, well, I think the technology, the absence of technology in childhood is is a positive. It's not like everyone grows up unscathed. That doesn't happen anywhere, right? This is what leaves me so perplexed. Why isn't anyone studying this? You have a whole community here where the children are not being raised with technology. And it's the perfect sample to study against larger society and say, oh, these are the implications of raising our children with screens.
1: And Mm -hmm. instead
0: the community is so entrenched in our biases about, Oh, they're doing this right. They're doing that wrong. Mostly people saying they're backwards that instead of saying, here's an opportunity to learn from a different way of life, we end up making all these value judgments that don't allow us to ask the question you were just asking Allison. But Mm. from my own experience, something I have seen and I think might be an interesting observation is that the children seem to be at a, in general, at a really healthy weight, even though the schools don't have sports. My own son gained weight after we left, and he only lost the weight well into teenage years. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with sitting in front of a screen because the children aren't necessarily as – they spend a lot of hours sitting and studying. But I think there's something about – They don't
1: do sports. They Are sp- they active?
0: little bit they play like old school on on the playground yeah and on the streets on the sidewalks sidewalk games recess time but they don't have this kind of oh every day you go to the gym in class
1: right right right
0: but I think absent so much technology the children are just not as sedentary you go to your grandma's house you go to your your aunt's house You know, you take an, make an errand here, you go to the store to see if there are new toys. I think that the children are, are, seem to be physically, they have, seem to have less obesity. Again, this is, I, I have no capacity to conduct a study. I can only see what I'm seeing in the streets. And I've heard it from a lot of tourists who would say, well, the children seem to be like a really healthy weight. Doesn't seem to have the obesity issues we have in American society. And I think that might Mm. be because of technology, but those are great questions.
1: What is important for you to teach your son about where he comes from and where does he go from here? Well, I guess his sense of belonging.
0: Yeah, his sense of belonging. You know, his sense of belonging is so deeply
1: Is he a rebel like you? No, he's not. He's a goody Uh two-shoes.
0: I'm like, where does this kid come from? Because I was always, whatever the adult, he's such a good kid. He wants to help around the house. Uh, and I'm like, what's wrong with you, kid? Be like me. Be- <laughs> give me, give me a hard time. Because my mother would always say, you know what? Giving me a hard time. It's going to happen to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but my kid is, he's, he's a sweetheart, but he, he doesn't connect to that world. And it, he used to talk about Jewish people as if he wasn't a Jewish person, which really bothered me. It made me very sad. But, um, I, I, I think he, it really sunk in that you could be a Jewish person a different way. Something about the Hasidic community that could be very overpowering is they end up claiming Jewishness, authentic Jewishness and making other Jews feel invalid, or at least that was my son's experience. So I I try, I hope that he feels like he he's a valid member of the Jewish tribe and he, he can enjoy celebrating these things without Jewish guilt, you know, without being like, oh, I don't do enough, which I hear from him. You know, I don't, we don't do enough. We don't, we don't do enough customs or whatever. Whatever you're doing is wonderful. Enjoy it and don't feel bad. That's my position.
1: That's gotta be so interesting too. You know, I'm assuming that your, your ex-husband is still in the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that must be so different from messaging, both raising your son.
0: Yeah, it, it is. I largely raised my son by myself. Yeah. Um, he was five when I left. Well, he, after I left, he had his fifth birthday, and he was a sidelock-wearing, yarmulke, Yiddish-speaking boy, and I guess four or five is too young because he forgot Yiddish, and now he only speaks English.
1: Is that a bummer for you?
0: Yeah, it is. Because your
1: first language was Yiddish, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, and I can't stand it when I have guests over and we speak Yiddish, and he sits there, and he doesn't understand. I'm like, what is wrong with you? What? How could you not understand Yiddish? Like how could this be a language that excludes you? Because Yiddish is often a language that feels very intimate. Like you know that almost no one speaks it except people you're very close to. And the fact yeah. that my son is excluded from that, it's very it's very sad.
1: What do the side curls mean? What is the significance? To
0: be honest, I don't even know. I don't oh, know the okay. correct answer. <laughs> uh,
1: I feel like there
0: there are some biblical reasons that I should give. There's I always hesitate to give any any reasons because I feel like I might get it wrong because oftentimes we did things without really talking about the reasons or the reasons seem to come after the tradition, you know, like once the custom has emerged, then you you start to come up with reasons for like a hundred different reasons for yeah. why it's, it's sacred and valuable. But to us, it was, you know, it was like a symbol of Jewish, of being a Jewish boy, of being a Jewish male. And um, to cut it off was the ultimate sense of betrayal.
1: So where do you see your place today?
0: In the larger world? Yeah. I'm hoping that a, a, a culture is emerging, and I think I'm seeing the beginning sprouts of it that can have a secular appreciation of New York City's Hasidic subculture without all the guilt and all the now that you left, you shouldn't come back here. Or now that you left and you're coming back, it shows that you really didn't want to leave kind of thing. Just, just a kind of helping to, first of all, celebrating, but also helping to contribute this culture's beauty to New York city's larger, bringing it into New York city's larger uh, mosaic of, of diversity and color and, yeah, you know, we see it with different cultures. People will go on YouTube and they'll want to see, oh, what's a Japanese newspaper like? That's the world I want to be part of where we say, what are different societies like? I'm not particularly necessarily in it, but I can appreciate that it exists and it's different from me. And I want to be part of that conversation.
1: I'm interested in, and I don't know if this is even an unfair, uh, an unfair comparison. But I think about insular communities like Mennonite uh-huh. and Amish communities and are there similarities with it or is it unfairly compared?
0: I think it's fair. I think it, it's never going to, it's always only going to be a comparison. Each community has its own
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, very, very unique aspects. But I think the comparisons offer themselves up because they're both subcultures that Don't organically remain different. Yeah, they wouldn't be different by default. They're different because of enormous efforts to remain different. It's not like a lot of people say stuck Mm. in the past. You're not really stuck in the past because in the past you didn't make an effort to keep saying, I'm not looking at this. I'm not looking at that. I'm not allowing this. I'm censoring Mm -hmm. that. There's, there's a concerted and sophisticated effort to keep from, from assimilating. And I think the Mennonites do that very effectively in their own way. I gave a tour to a group of Mennonites. It was the strangest experience that I had (laughs) a few years back. I think they weren't so happy with me because they wanted a tour guide who would tell them, God said this and God said that. And I think I'm more secular oriented.
1: Yeah. You sound like a conduit. You know, you sound like you've got, you're a translator.
0: That's how I see it.
1: Yeah. You sound like a translator of of a of a culture of a life, what do you know that you wish other people could know?
0: Well, everything, obviously. <laughs> everything I see, I want to share with everyone. I wish people would would be more open to knowing. And uh, something that I think drives me is that when I was Hasidic, I often felt that people looked at me like I was a creature from a different world. I, I wish for people to know that they're humans. In every you know, and complexity and diversity everywhere, but maybe I'm repeating myself when I say that.
1: No, I don't think so. you know, I just think it's interesting that you want the outside world to understand the acidic world, but the acidic world doesn't want to understand the rest. Hey, you know so it's really true. interesting to keep it so insular, like you said, it's a very sophisticated way to to protect the culture and each other, yeah. When a world that is so small and the family is so important, there has to be lessons learned there too.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of lessons. Something I I think about now that my friends and my siblings are starting to marry off their children is about marriage at a young age. You marry someone off at 18. You know, my own experience was so nerve wracking. All I remember was the stress of it. But, you know, thinking back, now that I look at it, I think the question of marriage at a young age and how it is successful or not, those are things I think about. You know, that's how you used to get married in the past. You just get married mm-hmm. and then grow into each other. Maybe it was a more happy or less happy union, but that was just the the fact that you knew that you didn't really have a choice gave your success rate. It, it allowed for a much higher success rate or it, it allowed for people to give things they're all more maybe or I don't know suffer silently I'm sure there was a combination of things but I like to think about these things I don't have the answer to the lessons I left it so I can't tell you you know I,
1: I wish I could it's so fascinating though yeah. but, and I don't think you left it I think you're there I think you're <laughs> yeah. continuing to translate but in a in a secular voice where can people find you and find your work
0: so I have, I give tours in Williamsburg as um, we talked about earlier and that you can find on my website, which is my name, Frida Weisel.com. and I also have a YouTube channel where I do videos of different aspects of the culture here, like like I said, newspapers and that you can find on my YouTube channel. Which is three to eight five seven. Very bad. URL.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an AOL account. <laughs> yeah, they gave it to me ten
0: years ago and I never I don't know how you change it.
1: <laughs> well I'm looking at some of the titles. There's a, a Hasidic Woman's Insights. There's what is kosher technology. I love learning about the kosher phone and Hasidic local economy. This stuff is really interesting. Yeah. This is really, really interesting. So Frida, I'm going to link everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a guest today and sharing your work. I think it's really important.
0: Oh, thank you, Alison. I love talking to you. So thank you and to your listeners.
1: Wow. I thought about this conversation for weeks after we spoke. I learned so much and have contemplated the idea of being so devoted to a faith and a community that nothing else mattered. While I've seen and heard of people leaving the ascetic Jewish faith, I remember, I I wonder if there are more secular people who consider converting to this faith and lifestyle. I hope you follow Frida Weisel. And seriously, her YouTube channel is amazing. I could watch it forever and have linked it in the show notes. As for me, I'm doing some massive things behind the scenes of this podcast. It would mean so much to me if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast player where you're listening to it as it really helps boost my podcast for others to find me. This episode of Culture Changers is made available for everyone for free. However, it's not free to create, produce, and publish it. I am funded by the generous supporters of the Culture Changers Patreon and hope you'll consider chipping in and getting all the episodes ad free and early by going to patreon.com forward slash culture changers. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.